Rojbaş, this is the Kurdish edition podcast and I'm your host Sardar Saadi. Hello everyone, welcome to the 11th episode of the Kurdish edition podcast. It has been a long time since our last episode. Taking a break was a necessary decision for me to take some time off from my other projects, uh, including this podcast, and focus on my doctoral dissertation in order to defend it by the end of this summer. I'm getting there, so uh, more episodes uh, uh, will be on the way as soon as I am done. Uh, however, as many of you uh, may already know, we started the Kurdish version of the podcast, Nusrea uh, Kurdi or Nusrei Kurdi, which is the English translation of uh, the Kurdish edition. Tofan Sumbul, uh, a Kurdish cultural activist in Bakur, uh, northern Kurdistan, Turkey, is editing the Kurdish version. Uh, we have actually produced uh, four episodes so far. Before uh, introducing my uh, my topic and my guest today, uh, let me quickly point out to two issues that uh, are on everyone's mind these days. First, I want to mention the difficult times of uh, the uh, COVID-19 pandemic that we are all going through, in which those uh, underprivileged, uh, repressed and excluded uh, are experiencing it in much more harsher conditions. And this includes our people in Kurdistan, especially the Kurdish urban poor and people and the people in Rojava that are going through this pandemic under the continuing attacks from the Turkish state. I'll try to make an episode just about the experience of this pandemic in Kurdistan uh, later, but for now, uh, please do consider helping those in need. Find a solidarity uh, campaign and uh, try to be uh, part of it and uh, uh, do as much as you can. Second, uh, I also wanted to express my solidarity with the uh, black people's uprising in the United States uh, during these days after the tragic killing of uh, George Floyd. Kurdish people understand and share the pain of uh, the black people and we we, I'm sure that we both know how the state violence has historically shaped our lives and destinies. Now, back to our main topic. Uh, for this episode, uh, I have the honor of uh, having uh, Awa Homa on my podcast. Awa Homa is a Kurdish writer and journalist that joins me today via Zoom from California. Awa holds an MA degree in English and Creative uh, Writing from uh, the University of Windsor in Canada. She is the uh, inaugural recipient of a Writers in Exile scholarship from uh, Pan Canada and Humber College. Her first debut uh, novel, uh, Daughters of Smoke and Fire, uh, just came out from Abrams Publishing House in the United States and uh, the Harper Collins Publishers in Canada. In the description of this episode, I will share a link to her website where you can find more information on where uh, you can get this book. And I encourage uh, all of you uh, to do so uh, if you can. Please also don't forget to uh, recommend this book to your uh, local libraries where uh, you live. Daughters of Smoke and Fire is the story of Kurdish life restrained by the state violence, patriarchy, and historical oppression of the Kurdish people. 
Through the life of the main character of the book, Leila, we learn about the everyday struggle of a Kurdish woman against demands, rules, and restrictions imposed on her by her family, her school, the men in her city, and the Iranian uh, government. The story is happening in many locations, including Marivan in Kurdistan, Tehran, and Toronto, and it spans from Leila's childhood in the late 1980s and the early 1990s until much recent uh, years. And with that, we read about many events in Kurdistan that have affected Leila's uh, living experience and ultimately what her future was going to be like. A story that many of us uh, Kurds in Iran uh, who have lived through the last 40 years of the Islamic Republic uh, of Iran are familiar with. Awa's novel uh, has received a lot of enthusiastic and critical appraisals. For example, a Chicago Review of Books says Daughters of Smoke and Fire, quote, unfurls the history of an oppressed people fighting for the right to live, love, thrive, and create. Homa peels back uh, layers of sorrow and injustice to reveal the resilience and hope for so many Kurds living in the stateless uh, nation. The end of quote. Professor Abbas Wali calls this book, uh, quote, a compelling narrative of consciousness and empowerment, end of quote. And Professor Shahzad Mujab praises it as, quote, an absorbing fiction with social and political insights into Kurdish identity, politics, and women's lives, end of quote. In this interview, Awa uh, talks about uh, uh, her experience of writing this book and the process of creating some of the powerful characters in, uh, in her story. Uh, Awa also uh, read a short part of her book for us, and I will start this interview from there. Uh, but first, uh, let's start with the legendary Kurdish singer Sayyid Ali Azgar Kurdistani, whom uh, Awa uh, mentions in her novel. I hope you enjoy it.
So this is the section when Alan, for the first time, opens up to Chian Leila about his time in prison. How would it happen when you were in prison? Chia pressed his luck. At midnight, Baba said, they would call names. We were 80 inmates in one wing, sometimes more, sometimes less. Anyone whose name was called after the sun went down never came back. I pricked up my ears from my invisible post. Baba's gaze remained on the flowers woven into the rock, his expression neutral, reminiscent. We would listen for and count the gunshots right before sunrise, and with a fork, we'd engrave the date and the estimated number of people executed on the walls of our cells. I steadied myself on the doorframe. My brother sat rigidly. Baba continued stoically. Every time that loudspeaker crackled, every time a guard turned it on and blew into it, every time someone whose name started with A was called, he stopped and glanced at Chia, true Chia, as if Chia weren't there. The ones who were called had only a moment to give their friends and cellmates any useful belongings they had. A shirt, a pair of shoes, a comb. And they might ask for something to be sent to their parents, wives or children. Their diaries, drawings, handicraft they had made in prison with inedible dough. Then their friends. Baba squeezed his eyes shut, bit at the corner of his, crackled, of his cracked, bloodless lips. After the men were taken away, their friends would like a candle if they had one, would pass around some dates if they had any, and would shed tears if they still had some left in them, that kind of stuff. They would gather the few possessions they had to give the executed something like a funeral, an acknowledgement of their existence in a place that wished to annihilate us all. Chia cleared his throat and asked in a gravely voice, was that the worst part when a friend was taken? My father looked away, rubbed his face, and pressed his fingers to his temple as if he were focusing on something. I wanted to run and grab a glass of water for Baba, whose lips had dried up, but I stayed put. Once a plainclothes man walked in with a flashlight in his hand, Baba squeezed, looked the other way, memories were crowding in. I held my breath so I wouldn't miss a single word. Three guards followed the man, who was clearly an Etalad agent. The intelligence service, Chia breathed. Baba continued. It was past midnight, and the central lights of the prison had all been turned off. We were about 12 cellmates then, Joanna's husband among us. Their daughter was due to be, to be born the day after. We were ordered to stand in a line and face this figure who walked before us, directing his flashlight at us. He pointed his index finger and ordered an unlucky prisoner to step forwards from the line. His blinding light then flashed into my face. I shut my eyes and frowned on a reflex. Baba's lips stayed low, slurring his speech. My heart was beating too loudly and I worried its pounding would drown out Baba's next word. And, Chia prompted softly. Baba sighed, the deepest sigh. Somehow the monster decided to move on to the next person and beckoned him out of the line. He didn't bother to call names, check the prisoner's files. He was so damn sure he would get away with it all. He could have ordered the light to be turned on in a snap. Nothing would have happened to him even then. But he didn't bother. He took eight men. Baba's features were tight, his breathing so labored, I felt he was reliving the terror. 
Did you hear what happened to those eight men? Was Schler's father one of the eight? He was. They're buried in Lanatawa. Baba didn't wait for Chia to ask what Lanatawa was. The cursed place. Mass graves where prisoners were taken after execution. Or if they die under torture. Or if the subjects are just kidnapped or disappeared. Or if their families can't afford to pay the bullet fees. Can you imagine when they executed someone, they made the families pay for the very bullets that killed them just to get the body back. Kurdistan is full of mass graves, all called Lanatawa. Our region was one huge mass graves. Some lay silent, some cried out from under the earth. My father needed nursing just as much as the helpless Kurds in Iran, the homeless ones in Iraq, the hopeless ones in Turkey, and the stateless ones in Syria. Uh, Awa, thank you so much for uh, joining me uh, on the Kurdish Edition podcast. It's a great honor to have you on this podcast, uh, especially during uh, these uh, strange times that we are in. Thanks for making time. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And uh, again, we talked a little bit before. Uh, big congratulations on uh, the publication of your book. Uh, it's such amazing read and uh, uh, many uh, rave uh, reviews, many critical appraisals that we are seeing uh, are testimony to uh, the, the work that you have done. Thank you. I worked really, really hard on it and I'm so glad to finally see some uh, that I've been able to touch people's heart around the world, even though they didn't previously know so much about the Kurds. So it feels really good in that sense. Yeah. So uh, in Canada, it's coming out from uh, Harper's uh, calling. Uh, and in, in the United States, it's uh, Abrams is the publication house. Right, Abrams. And in UK, it's... Uh, sister company called Abram and Chronicle. So right now we have it published in UK, US and Canada. Uh, the UK edition will come out June 11. June 11. And the, the Canadian edition, I think, came out uh, on the 12th, May, May 12th. 12th. Yes, US and Canada came out May 12th. Right. And for other uh, for people who are not in these three countries, uh, I I think the ebook version is also available, right? Definitely, it's available across the world. Right, right, okay. And uh, I, I want to start with uh, a little bit of your uh, uh, your writer background. I know this is uh, the second book uh, that you have written, and the first book was a collection of uh, short stories, right? Yes, that's correct. It was called Echoes from the Other Land. It was published in Toronto and was nominated for Franco Connor Short Story Prize. Yeah, in 2010. That's right. Yes, yeah. 2010. Yeah. And uh, I didn't get a chance to uh, take a deeper look at that uh, book, but you also talk about the Kurdish experience in that book. Uh, uh, can you tell us a little bit more about the first book? The first book was a collection of short stories. All of them were set in Iran. Some of them were set in Kurdistan. The rest were set across Iran. And it was the story of seven different women and seven different ways that they tackle patriarchy and geopolitical oppressions and all of that. Right, right. 
And uh, after that, uh, I know that you also did a master's degree in creative writing uh, at uh, Windsor University. Am I right? right? Right, that's true. So writing has always been part of my life. I right. was an early reader and I started writing also really early. And uh, I received my master's degree in creative writing from Canada in 2009. Yeah. Uh, I am also coming from Iran. And uh, when I came to Canada like 11 years ago, I started uh, learning English. Uh, the process of just learning another language because this is almost third and for some people fourth language. How do you deal with this process of uh, learning? I'm sure that you, in Iran, you uh, also had some background in English uh, studying, right? Right, I majored in English. Um, so I was a reader of English long before I started writing in it. Um, and I was a, I've been a writer my whole life. So the problem for me was transition between writing in um, writing into English and it wasn't easy and uh, no one told me that I could do it in fact everyone said that it's impossible everyone said that you might be able to have enough command of English to maybe submit your papers at graduate school and get a life get a job and just uh, be able to correspond with Canada Revenue Agency <laughs> <laughs> but creating literary work in your third language is not gonna happen and I believed that and I didn't believe it. Um, I didn't believe it because I have been lied to so many times in my life before. Because I was told, you're a woman, you can't do anything, you know. You're alone, you can't immigrate. It's impossible for you to get a student visa. It's impossible to get a scholarship. It's uh, everything that I wanted to do in my life, I was told that it's just not gonna happen. Right. Um, um, you're Kurdish, you're a woman, you don't have money, what are you going to do? <laughs> Nothing's going to happen. And so when I started writing, um, creating literary work in English, I wasn't, sh I wasn't actually sure it's going to get anywhere because I started out really awful, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and it was really crippling. But, um, uh, but then I guess I'm good at I think fearlessness is a Kurdish heritage. <laughs> right, right, right. No, I, I, I can see that this uh, the uh, just the uh, uh, the determination of uh, mastering this language uh, is just uh, uh, really something uh, that not many people uh, who who are not born to this language can can do. Yeah, exactly, um, but it's not possible. It's what I'm trying to tell other people. That yes, it takes a lot of dedication, as you said. It takes millions of hours of writing and reading, but it's not impossible. No one should tell you it's impossible. If you have a passion for language, if you have a passion for literature, mm -hmm. if writing is what makes you happy and gives you joy and gives you meaning, don't don't stop just because other people think it's impossible. You know, when you go to Cirque du Soleil and look at what the actors are doing there or the actresses, it's just mind-blowing because when you look at yourself, your body, and everyone around you, you think it's impossible to do the things that people do in Cirque du Soleil. And yet it's real. It's out there. It's just out of our purview. So, Yeah, yeah, no, but the, uh, yeah, for the, when I was reading this book, I, I was truly uh, immersed in your use of language, the, uh, the English language. Uh, 
just beside the story and the way that you develop your characters. And uh, speaking of which, uh, I want to ask, uh, maybe start uh, asking you some questions about the book, uh, beginning with if the story came first or uh, the characters, like some of the characters are so familiar. It's like, uh, for, of course, for the Kurds uh, who uh, lived in Iran, like some of the experiences even I went through and I know that my sisters went through in, uh, in Iran. And uh, I was wondering if the story came uh, that grabbed you and you developed the characters based on that, or it was unfolded based on those people, Leila, Shiler, Chia. Character, a character is definitely my priority, um, and everything that happens uh, happens surrounding them. So events make sense to me only if they change something in the character. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, why would they even happen? And at the same time, I was also studying history and trying to see where my character trajectory meets with historical events. I wanted to stay loyal and accurate to the historical events that have happened to the Kurds. I was hoping mm -hmm. to be able to tell a universal story. So it's a story that's not just mine, but a story that this is what you're telling me right now, Sarda, is what I was really hoping to hear, that Kurds would read this and say, I see myself in it. This is my story too. You know, that was so important to me. And it's so important that people are giving me this feedback now, especially Kurdish women, because I dedicated my book to Kurdish women. You know? right. Right. And the, uh, the title, uh, Daughters of Smoke and Fire, uh, it tells a lot about the experience of uh, Kurdish women, especially for those who have experienced uh, war and, uh, excuse me, and the, uh, the fight for, uh, uh, for national liberation, for women's freedom uh, in last five years or maybe more against many uh, jihadist groups who are uh, aiming to enslave women and uh, they did it against many Yazidi Kurdish women. Uh, so uh, how you came up with the title? Was there uh, any specific uh, resonation of this title with the uh, content of the book or what you want to say? Um, so, as um, I, I was trying to make sure that I do justice to the reality of the curse, meaning that I didn't want to romanticize life under oppression. And a lot of time, um, at least the women that I work with in my activism, they're um, the people who actually push them over the edge are their parents. A lot of time for the girls, unfortunately, it's their mother. And if so, you're not the daughter of your mother, whose daughter are you? And I thought of smoke and fire because fire is so representative in Kurdish culture. It's how we celebrate our you know, roots. It's, um, it just means so much. It's, it has roots deep in our history. It goes back to the Zoroastrians and the Yazidism and all of that. And just and what fire does in terms of it, it, it gives you energy and it gives you light and it gives you warmth, but it could also burn you. And that's... Um, awareness you need to develop as growing up as a Kurdish woman to know how much you can get close to this fire not too far away so you want me to go but not you can't you don't want to be inside the fire it was also representative in the sense that as you know unfortunately so many women in Roshalat have decided to set their bodies on fire as a way to protest the situation they're in as a way to cry for help as right. a way to tell the world how much they have been burning inside 
So to me, it was just meaningful in so many ways. Also the idea of the smoke, the fog, the unclarity that you have when you first find out about your place in this world as a stateless person, as a woman, growing up under dictatorship and your attempts to get those unclarity out of the way. So um, the title is not something that came to me first. Um, I was more interested in my character than in story, than in the history. Um, but then I think it's very relevant, at least to me in my head. Right. <laughs> no, it, 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 uh, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, uh, and many of your characters are also, um, uh, they show this duality, uh, this dual nature of fire, like uh, the way that you say that, it's also it's it could uh, make uh, a beautiful bonfire you can uh, celebrate no rules or your uh, other uh, celebrations around it but it, there is also smoke and darkness and also it can burn you yeah. uh, so uh, your main character Leila uh, I don't want to give a lot of spoilers about the book but you start from her early childhood until uh, uh, quite uh, later in uh, uh, her uh, youth uh, years. I don't want to talk about the <laughs> whole series of the developments in the book. Uh, was there any uh, specific uh, real person that you uh, saw her as inspiration for this character? Um, not really. Like I said, I was trying to tell a story that can a lot that a lot of people can see themselves in it. Mm -hmm. um, and and like I created Schler because Schler is someone that I have seen in Rojal. I have, I actually actually seen in person. Or Joanna is someone that I wish every Kurdish girl would have in their lives, right? So it's it's based on what I think is appeals to a lot of people in their in their life, and also what a little bit of I wish what else they had in life because. Um, so the difference between fiction and life is that fiction is expected to make sense, right? And fiction is expected to have a balance between suffering and joy, and those things don't happen in life. Right. So I was trying to create a world that is not just suffering, there's also hope and resilience, and that uh, the main character does receive help from somewhere. Um, I and think- there is uh, Leila's childhood friend, that kind of group that grows up with her, but quite a different character. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Someone that uh, you uh, you want uh, Leila to also become like that, but then Leila has a totally different uh, process of growing up and uh, such a resilient uh, character and that goes through a lot of uh, different process of uh, life. But there is also Chia, uh, uh, Leila's brother, that kind of uh, was inspired, the character was inspired by uh, Farzad Kamangar, as you said, uh, in, at the end of the book. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Maybe it's a little bit difficult topic. Uh, yeah. Sure. Um, so it is a difficult topic, yes, because Farzad touched so many of us, right? Um, right. And every time I get an interview with a foreigner, they ask me, was he really famous? Like, what is it about him that made so many of you uh, 
look up to him and how did he inspire your writing? I think it was about, to me, Farzad was really unique because I guess I have been reading about Gandhi and Nelson Mandela and all of these great figures, Martin Luther King, but they weren't Kurdish. And I was looking for a Kurdish person who is my age range, who mm-hmm. has come from Rojhalan, who has been able to keep his humanity intact and uh, has been able to stay hopeful despite everything. And I think what was really amazing about Farzad was that he was able to um, write all these beautiful things right after he got tortured, you know? He would talk about getting beaten for having a, a Kurdish ringtone, for having an accent, and yet he would come out of those torture sessions and he wasn't full of hate. How? Yeah. You know, how could, he, how could he still have hope? I interviewed some of the people who were his cellmates at the time, and they were saying that even as in person, he was just so touching. There was something about his, his purity, not in a sense that he was naive because he wasn't. He could actually see the reality, but he could also not give in to realities. He was able to, like as I've said in the book, to imagine otherwise and to push for it and to teach you through his, his life and his lesson. And when that happened to him and when I was fascinated by his writing, I was in that place in my life where for the first time I was, even though I've been writing my whole life, I questioned writing. I had started writing in English. It was really difficult. I, just, I could just see that even though I'm not silenced in Canada, I have, I'm not being heard either. And obviously I was full of doubts and questions and all of that. And then he, I thought that if he's, he's able to push on in, in Evan, then shame on me if I can't keep trying in Canada and in Toronto. Mm. Um, so I wrote his story and then it was just a short story because I was a short story writer. And then I started imagining what if Farzad had a sister? You know, what would she do? And if like so many other young women in Roshala, she is really pushed to the edges. How can she find strength? How can she find meaning? How can she find hope? And that's how Chia and Farzad came to existence as my favorite characters. And I really liked Schler, but I felt like if Schler is my main character, people won't believe her. They feel like she's extremely fearless. She's extraordinary. And I wanted a more ordinary character. I wanted a main character who's more flawed so that more people will relate to her, you know? I also want to ask about Joanna uh, because you mentioned at the beginning that she's from Kobani mm-hmm. and it was very surprising for me. But later on, I was expecting some sort of uh, her special story, but it didn't uh, that uh, much come up. But uh, I mean... Uh, let me change the topic a little bit about, like in general, what you, uh, what I see that you have done in this book to uh, talk about the struggle of uh, uh, these Kurdish individuals uh, in their life and coming to age in a lot of their uh, selfhood questions, especially with Leila, with her family, her, her father who has been uh, experienced torture, uh, her mom. And uh, all the people around uh, this family, uh, and there is also this collective repression of the the Kurds, the collective repression of everyone involved in uh, in some sort of making a change for the Kurds in the Kurdish life. Uh, at some point in the book, like I think it was page one thirty one, uh, based on my notes, you say that perhaps trauma 
was, uh, let me find out. Perhaps trauma was a Kurdish heritage passed down through generations. So there is also the traumatic experience of Kurdish individuals, uh, both in their lives, uh, in case of Leila and Joanna and Schiller, in their experience with the, Kur the Kurdish men, and uh, in also in their own uh, uh, their own tribe to to become someone. Uh, how did you deal with writing about all of these traumatic experiences? I was feeling that uh, that Awa must have been traumatized by writing uh, <laughs> with all of this trauma. Do you want to talk about that? So it, it was definitely a very difficult book to write, right? Um, so I could be sitting in my computer and writing about my characters running, and then I start sweating. I'm sitting down, I'm not doing anything, but as they run, mm -hmm. I also start sweating. And then at one point, one of the characters, as you know, experiences loss. And I was writing those chapters about the burial and her dealing with grief when I hadn't experienced grief in my life. But after that, through her, I think I experienced that. So it was a difficult book for me to write, but I felt like if I have been given the privilege of being able to express myself in writing, if I have the talent in writing and I want to tell a story, then I should do my best to tell it this way. Right. Um, was I traumatized while writing it? I wasn't traumatized. I know it was difficult and there were so many times that I wanted to give up, right? I, I had to take frequent breaks between it, but I'm glad that I, I persevered because even when I was trying to publish this, my publishers were saying that some of these sections are too much. Are you sure you want to include it? Right. It might be too difficult. And my argument was, we have experienced it. If we have lived through it, can people just read it at least? <laughs> yeah. Um, and what I'm offering at the end of the day, I was aware that I'm only offering a glimpse of what Kurdish people experience. It's not even, it's not even the tip of the iceberg. You know that. Right. And in terms of trauma and how I was exploring that, I was interested in two generations of Kurds. The generation who experienced things like Halabja, and, the, and then the generation that comes after it, which won't experience genocide or physical attack firsthand, but then they kind of inherit it. Or how do you deal with a trauma that's not specifically your personal trauma, but it's your parents' trauma, it's your family's trauma, it's your people trauma. Right. And uh, it was, I think it was something that was worth exploring because so many times media only looks at what they can count, numbers and what's physical. Right. And we get to write about ethnocide and uh, what past, what goes down through generations. And I just wanted to bring some awareness to, to that. What do we all know how much prisoners suffer, but how do the children of prisoners suffer? How do they may or may not make sense of their life and their parents' experience? But I also love the way that you put this. Uh, um, playful sometimes everyday forms of resistance mm -hmm. is uh, what james scott the anthropologist my own uh, area of interest calls weapons of the week so uh like some of the scenes this resistance takes place like we have i have all also experienced in the library like stealing from library like those books that are marked as uh 
belonging to infidel or something that makes you become an infidel or uh, things that are uh, creating vice in the society or the, you have uh, my sisters were always telling me about the waiting in the line and at school and you have this uh, beautiful part i think it's a chapter uh which chapter was it i think it's a chapter three where mm -hmm. Shiler and uh, leila are waiting in the line and they they are forced to uh recite uh, some slogans, some uh, government slogans, but they just uh, use that opportunity to scream. Or also the scene from uh, the Evin prison uh, where Chia is offering chocolate to the executioners. And all of that is just giving you uh, this uh, sense of, hey, this is trauma. Of course, there is trauma, but uh, these people are resisting. And there is uh, this richness of culture, food. You talk a lot about a lot of the food in, uh, in some of them that I don't even know in Maryland area. And all of these Kurdish authors and poets. Uh, uh, do you want to talk about the experience of writing about resistance or how do you see resistance, a dialectic that resistance has, or this everyday acts of resistance with the, uh, with the repression? Right. I'm glad you noticed that. I was uh, sprinkling those little moments in the book to show that uh, people are, aren't just victims, even though they live in a really horrible situation and they find very small ways to just be defiant and feel victorious despite everything. Um, like you said, it happens in, didn't we all experience some form of it, you know, from reading banned books to other ways we try to um, stand up to what we couldn't actually tackle in any other possible way. Um, as for, for throwing in food and poetry and all of that, I was also trying to just do justice to the richness of Kurdish literature and Kurdish poetry and Kurdish food and Kurdish history that even though, that how much, because I think so much of Kurdishness is about resilience, is about, um, reinvention is i think each one of us that's alive today we are a phoenix we kind of came out of our ashes Interesting. Um, and i feel like that's that resistance is as much part of uh kurdish culture as sherko uh, bekas as uh, the foods that with funny names like maladiz or malaki yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i actually had to research those to be honest i didn't know about them and, yeah, it also goes back to just finding balance because, like I said, when you write in English, um, you're dealing with an audience that can only take so much of suffering before they put the book down. And I, I was hoping people would power through this. And so, yeah, yeah. No, there, there is a lot. There is a lot. Uh, and things like that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, very much uh, in that sense, it's kind of an, as an encyclopedia of knowing, <laughs> knowing about Rochala. Um, uh, maybe one final question about the book, and then I want to ask you a little bit. We mentioned some of these Kurdish authors. Uh, uh, I want to ask you about uh, Kurdish literature. But uh, before that, uh, in the final part, you also talk about migration and uh, 
there is this experience of migration and many of us, many of your uh, Kurdish audience are probably in the same category. And uh, you talk about this experience of finding job, like learning English and communicating and just finding and learning about some names, some very basic stuff that uh, is totally... To catch a bus. You have to learn how to catch a bus. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And uh, I'm glad that you talked about it because uh, for many of us, this is the point that uh, you're like, okay, so this is the, uh, the, the, the stage of li our life that we are, again, we have to be reborn and uh, uh, relearn everything and make ourselves uh, create that selfhood, that personality that is considered to be someone that's successful in, in their life. Uh, do you wanna, is there anything that you wanna talk about that? Well, I mean, I, when I was trying to come up with Leila's plot, I was wondering if she can finally find happiness somewhere. and. Mm -hmm. uh, when she's looking at options, like, should I go to Bashur? Should I go to UN? Should I go to... Um, first of all, I wanted her to stay in that country for as long as she can um, and see if she can find strength there. And I tried so hard to find her happiness there and it was just impossible. So I said, you know what, Leila, I'm sorry, I have to move you to somewhere else and you have to, like you said, build your life from scratch. You know, yeah. from, from the beginning and experience that displacement. And I also wanted to explore the idea of even when people change location, they might bring in a little bit of the tyranny that they thought they had escaped and how um, you can, the immigrant community can turn on against each other. And um, just wanted to have her find some happiness, but also have new challenges to deal with because if her life is suddenly really interesting, then no one's going to read her story, right? <laughs> it's like, That's true. Happily ever after. And I didn't want a happily ever after, so... Yeah, there is a nice happy... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm probably going to delete that. I don't know. I'm going to give that spoiler. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it was just it, something else to explore, really. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Uh, one final comment i uh with all of these difficulties and joyful moments and uh all of these characters which part was most uh, the most difficult uh, that uh, the writing was quite a challenge for you um the the scene when they are burying someone in silence and secretly at night yeah. And there is denial and there is a connection between two characters that haven't spoken to each other for years. Right. And their failure at communicating when they really, really need each other. Right. I think that was when I, when I choked. <laughs> oh. oh. No, I, I mean, um, this is the, also the second book that uh, uh, recently came out. The first book, the, uh, the Behruz Bouchani's uh, you won an award, yeah. Yeah, no friends, but the mountains. Uh, it was also quite heart wrenching, mm -hmm. and uh, maybe we should talk a little bit about the Kurdish literature 
I think you and Behruz are among the celebrities uh, who have published recently in English, but we have many other Kurdish uh, authors that are not very much known in, uh, in the English world, uh, even though some of them are, uh, have been translated in French, in other languages, especially people, uh, Kurds are uh, historically uh, uh, used to migrate to uh, Scandinavian countries more than North American uh, countries. So many Swedish uh, translations of uh, uh, this literature is available. Uh, how are you connected with the uh, Kurdish authors uh, and the Kurdish literature? I am more of a consumer of Kurdish literature, meaning I just love to see what's out there and get them and read them. Um, I'm not really a critic in that sense, and I don't really know what allows some writers to be more recognized than others. I know that it was extremely hard for me to get published. Right. Uh, I was told so many times that, I'm sorry, the story is great, the writing is beautiful, but this is just not gonna solve. Mm -hmm. And uh, I kept getting turned down because of that. Right. Um, I'm sure this is something that a lot of other Kurdish uh, authors are experiencing, the, the, the worry about sales. Um, um, I also, I feel like I, I also, there's, there's an anger in me that because I know how many talented um, Kurdish women are out there, uh, poets, storytellers who, are by far more intelligent and more interesting than I am. But their voices get mutilated as part of these layers of oppression that we deal with, right? right. Uh, cultural, um, geopolitical, but also just how the Western world looks at you and perceives you and all of that. Um, I just know that I, was, I thought I can do this because of other Kurdish women and what other Kurdish women have achieved throughout centuries and generations you know so many times Kurdish women have to tell um have to tell not just the, the rulers but also Kurdish men that I also exist that my, I matter my story matters you can't shut me out and if they hadn't done that then I wouldn't be a writer today um I'm grateful that my own mother wasn't was so interested in books that I I saw her more with a book than I saw her in the kitchen and that our house was full of books. And um, so she fought in her own ways, her mother fought in her own ways, and then I am fighting in my own way, and I hope the next generation will have a much easier time than us. You mentioned uh, um, during our conversation before recording that you are also writing or in some sort of writing process. Is there anything that you are writing that you should know about? <laughs> so um, uh, for my first book, I was interested in exploring brother-sister's relationship because I think this is, to me, it's one of the most beautiful loves that exist between siblings because it's not based on instincts like parent-child relationship. It's not based on anything that you want from someone. It's not like lover's relationship. It's, it's just very unique and very beautiful and very interesting in the way siblings can take care of each other uh, and protect each other. But this time I am writing a love story of a couple that are uh, separated because of the genocide that happened recently in Sanja. Um, and again, I'm trying to explore human resilience. I'm trying to see uh, if women who were taken as sex slave and came back, 
how are they defining their life? Like, because some of them are children oh. with the jihadis. How are they dealing with that? Is it possible to recover and repair from something like that? Oh. And if yes, how? You know, right. it's not something that happened decades ago. It happened only a few years ago. And when you talk to this Kurdish woman, they tell you how many times as they were running away from Daesh, they looked at the sky and hoped that there will be a plane or something. Or like the city of Kocho was under siege for weeks before Daesh took over. Right. No one went to help them. Um, and is it possible to recover from rape? Is that something that you can recover from? And right. what do you do with the children that are that come to exist because of that? So it's a it's another really tough topic to tackle. And again, I have doubts. I have moments when I'm like, I can't do this. It's too much. And then yeah. there are other days when I tell I myself, you have to keep pushing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very very difficult uh, experience that we have been through. The Kurdish experience. The Kurdish drama. Right. <laughs> Beautifully talk about. Uh, thank you so much, Ava. Is there anything else that you want uh, your uh, audience, your readers, want to know? There's a moment when Chia um, posts a poster of Sherkobekas into Leila's room as a way to cheer her up, and the line that is there from Sherkobekas says, um, "God should come down and try being being a Kurd for one day." Mm-hmm. I just hope people who read this book get a glimpse of what it's like to be a Kurt for at least the amount of, the number of hours that they're reading this book. Because what has happened to us is that not only we have been um, oppressed and, and we have been targets um, in so many ways of genocide and ethnocide, the thing is our pain is also obscured and it's mm-hmm. denied um, and it's silenced. Because we live in a world where people know more about Kardashian than about Kurds. And I hope something changes with this book, not so much in the politics and real politics. And I don't think that's going to be an immediate effect, but I hope it does change something in the reader. So next time they hear about an attack on Kurds, it wouldn't be just who are the Kurds. It would be like, oh, Chia, oh, Leila. And their heart goes out and then they, they do something. They write to their representatives or do something to, to stop this from happening. Right. And if I may modify that saying of Shirkovekas, I, I hope that person become one of your characters, one of those Kurdish that are struggling for, for the, the liberation of their people and for their own uh, liberation and emancipation. Not that those Kurds that are following Leila on <laughs> the streets. <laughs> we also have a lot of repression among, uh, in our society uh, which you uh, beautifully show in uh, the character of Leila and the struggle that she has. Thank you so much, Ava. Shorish get up,
Oh. 